Welcome to our podcast, where we are offering the best from Temple Solel in Paradise Valley, Arizona. Here our clergy team of Rabbi John Linder, Rabbi Debbie Steele, and cantorial soloist Todd Herzog share their weekly insights from our Shabbat services and beyond. Temple Solel is a vibrant and engaged reform community grounded in relationships and deeds and elevated by Shabbat and Torah. We welcome all who seek a connection to Jewish life regardless of religious background, race, ethnicity, gender, socioeconomic status, ability, age, sexual orientation, and gender identity. Don't forget to subscribe to get a notification for our next episode. Find more information at www.templesolel.org. So it is a great honor and joy to uh, introduce our scholar in residence for the weekend, uh, Rabbi Darren Kleinberg. Rabbi Kleinberg is senior fellow with a concentration in education and Jewish studies at the Stanford Graduate School of Education, was the founding executive director of Valley Beit Midrash. He completed a PhD in religious studies from ASU, go Sun Devils, uh, and was ordained in 2005. Uh, That perhaps is the most uh, uh, modest and humble bio, Um, but people actually, so Rabbi Kleinberg, uh, start to come up if you would, and I'm just gonna add a few more words. um, That Rabbi Kleinberg's legacy um, is, uh, one of his legacies in the community is Uh, Valley Beit Midrash to have a vision of a pluralistic um, pluralistic a culture of critical thinking and to uh, to live words of Torah uh, in uh, in the real world and uh, and for a brother and a friend it is really an honor to have you here tonight. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. So nice to be here with my uh, friend and soul brother, Rabbi John. Um, we've, we've been a lot of years we've been together. Um, you know, when we started Valley Beit Midrash in uh, 2005, I guess, something like that, 2007, um, Rabbi, Rabbi Linder and Temple Solal were uh, among the very first uh, synagogues uh, to get involved and join us in that effort, and, um, and we've had this wonderful relationship ever since. So I'm just uh, I'm, I'm grateful and humbled to stand here uh, in in uh, this bima and another friend of mine over there on the guitar, and also just to see so many folks that uh, have meant so much to me and to my family over the years, uh, friends and mentors and teachers, and most important of all, uh, some students from Jess Schwartz, whom I love. Uh, who are some of the most important people uh, that I got to, uh, you know, encounter in my life as a teacher. So it's just a really special, uh, special privilege to be here this evening. Um, Thank you. 
So the, the, the topic for this evening is uh, doing Teshuvah in the Anthropocene. I'm told that uh, at least one and maybe two of those words may be new to some folks. So don't worry, I'm going to help you out. Um, let's just set the context. In terms of the Jewish calendar, uh, we are in the thick of the season of Tshuva, which began last Friday at, with the start of the Hebrew month of Elul, and will uh, run until uh, a few weeks from now, uh, until the end of, uh, of Yom Kippur. This is the season of Teshuva. And in terms of, uh, of geological time, uh, we're living through what has come to be known as the Anthropocene. And uh, what I want to do this evening is talk about what it might mean to do Teshuva during the Anthropocene, to, to ask whether there is some meaningful intersection between the Jewish time we are in and this larger geological era that we're in. Now, um, let's just let's begin with a quick reminder uh, about the meaning of the Anthropocene. So uh, let me quote from Earl Ellis' book on the subject. Uh, Ellis writes that the Anthropocene refers to an era of, and here I quote, acidifying oceans, shifting global cycles of carbon, nitrogen, and other elements, the transformation of forests and other natural habitats into fawns and cities, widespread pollution, radioactive fallout, plastic accumulation, the course of rivers being altered, the mass extinction of species, human transport, and the introduction of species around the world, and the most damaging of all, global climate change. And it is believed that these various human-induced global environmental changes will leave a lasting record in the Earth's rock, which is the basis for making new intervals of geologic time hence the Anthropocene. Simply put, the Anthropocene is the geological era of human-induced climate change. What about tshuva? What about tshuva, that Hebrew word, and what might it mean for us to do tshuva in the Anthropocene, in this era that I just described? So to answer those questions, this evening I want to draw out four aspects of tshuva, each one pointing to a different understanding of what it might mean to do teshuva during this era of global climate change. The first aspect of teshuva is that of confession. From the perspective of the Jewish tradition, confession, or what is called in Hebrew vidui, is the foundation stone of teshuva. So important is it that one can only really begin to do teshuva if one first does vidui, which is to say, first admits their wrongdoing. In the Anthropocene, the application is straightforward. Doing teshuva in the Anthropocene precludes us from denying what is happening and the role that we as humans have played. As Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel once said in a different context, in a free society, some are guilty, all are responsible. In terms of Jewish practice, the obligation to confess calls on Jewish communities to add to the al Khait prayer that is recited on Yom Kippur. You know that prayer where we're clapping on our chest and we're listing 
all of those collective misdeeds that we have, we have committed and is repeated multiple times throughout that high holy day, what we are called upon is to include a verbal confession about climate change as an important first step when it comes to doing tshuva in the Anthropocene. So that's number one, tshuva is confession. Add it to the list of al khaits on Yom Kippur. Second aspect of tshuva I want to talk about is tshuva as taking responsibility. Once we come to terms, once we confess, once we admit to what is happening, uh, if we've really come to terms with it, we cannot but be moved by a sense of responsibility. But the question is, to do what? To do what? So a few years ago, a friend and I decided to dedicate our weekly Shabbat afternoon walk to discussing climate change-related research and writing that we had explored in the week prior, and we did this for a year, a weekly chevruta in climate change. I recommend it. The hardest thing I learned during that year, and here I'm simplifying things somewhat, but the hardest thing I learned that year was that unless you are a captain of, in, of, of industry or a mega philanthropist or a highly influential politician, then your ability to meaningfully slow the pace of climate change is somewhere between negligible and zero. That was a very hard truth to come to. To which the Jewish tradition responds in the memorable words of the ancient sage Rabbi Tarifon, even though it's not possible for you to complete the task, you are still not permitted to do nothing. Right? Lo alecha malacha ligmor, velo ata ben chorin mena. Okay, so you can't fix it. You still have to do something. That's what Judaism says. Surely this is the definition of taking responsibility. And so doing tshuva in the Anthropocene means taking responsibility even as we know the impact of our actions will be limited at best. Okay, but what might it actually look like for us to take responsibility in the Anthropocene? To try to answer that question, let's explore a third aspect of tshuva. So over the course of the past 25 years, I have had the uh, opportunity to support several people struggling with substance abuse. It started when I lived, I lived up in Canada a long time ago and got involved in their Jewish uh, Alcoholics Anonymous group and I've just had the opportunity to work with a number of people over the years struggling with substance abuse. And inspired by what I've learned in those encounters, I want to propose that the third aspect of tshuva is recovery. Recovery. To begin with, I think that there's a compelling case to be made that a recognition of the damaging effects of substance abuse is at the heart of the Jewish wisdom tradition. After all, the Torah begins with two failed attempts at creation, both times due to the main characters imbibing substances. The first is when Adam and Eve are exiled from paradise for eating a forbidden fruit. And the second, less well-known, is when Noah gets off the ark, plants a vineyard, proceeds to get drunk, and creates a whole slew of problems for his offspring as a result. 
Later on in the Torah, it is the story of Aaron's two sons getting drunk, playing with fire, and ultimately dying as a result that is offered as the basis for the Yom Kippur service, which, as the story goes, was first observed by Aaron the high priest to atone for his son's drunken folly. So this is right at the heart of our tradition. If you want to know anything about what religion is about it's at its best, it's about getting sober. That's what it's about. Okay. But how do we take the lessons of substance abuse and recovery and learn something about how to do tshuva during the Anthropocene? So here's the answer. Recovery is fundamentally about removing one's dependence on a harmful substance. By analogy, we might say that the Anthropocene is the result of our dependent relationship on natural resources, material objects, animals, food sources, and the list goes on. We humans are, in short, addicted to consuming. And so, taking a page from the world of recovery, one way we can take responsibility for what is happening is by working to overcome our dependence on those things that have contributed to the Anthropocene. Now, rather than standing up here and telling you what you need to do, I wouldn't be that audacious. I'd rather suggest that it's up to you to determine the ways that you can reduce your dependence on the Earth's precious resources. Because ultimately, and just as with substance abuse, recovery begins with you. And it is recovery that leads us to the fourth and final aspect of tshuva. As is well known, probably most famously from Alcoholics Anonymous, the path to recovery is often rooted in an acceptance of the presence of a higher power. Similarly, the classical understanding of tshuva in Judaism is that it is about returning to God. Now for a more inclusive and less theologically laden understanding of tshuva, we might think of it simply as being about getting back to taking your spiritual life seriously. Okay? That's the definition I'm going to use here. Getting back to taking your spiritual life seriously. When I refer to your spiritual life, when I refer to your spiritual life, I'm referring to your awareness of the mystery that surrounds and pervades your life and that gives rise to a sense of wonder and humility at all of this and about which we Jews are accustomed to offer a blessing of gratitude. You know it. Join me. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Shehechianu vikimanu vehigianu Lazman hazeh Ah, 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 
That's what it means to get back to taking your spiritual life seriously. And as we recited earlier this evening in the Shema, our Torah and our liturgy call on us to devote our, our hearts, our souls, and our might to cultivating that aspect of our lives. But what does this aspect of tshuva have to do with the Anthropocene? What contribution does getting back to taking your spiritual life seriously make during this time of global climate change? So two answers are found in the prophetic books of the Hebrew Bible. The first is in the book of Jonah, and the second is in the book of Jeremiah. The book of Jonah is a fantasy. After all, how else are we to interpret the episode when Jonah is swallowed whole by a big fish only to survive in there for three days? I mean, what is this other than the stuff of fantasy? And with all due respect, Jonah's version of tshuva is also a fantasy. After surviving inside the fish, Jonah arrives in Nineveh, prophesies that the city will be destroyed in 40 days' time. In response, all the inhabitants of the city repent and the tragedy is averted. This version of tshuva is a fantasy. It's a fantasy because it imagines that if you do tshuva, the bad thing won't happen. This is contrasted with the book of Jeremiah. Unlike the book of Jonah, which is a fantasy, the book of Jeremiah is much more realistic. Historical fiction, we might call it in our contemporary genres. In the book of Jeremiah, the prophet declares that the Babylonians are going to destroy the temple and exile the people. And when he tells the people to do tshuva, there's no indication that the destruction will be avoided. And yet, they are implored to do tshuva, to return to God, to get back to taking their spiritual lives seriously. As some of you may know, and as I learned in that year-long chevruta with my good friend, the fact is that even if we were to stop all emissions from fossil fuels today, it would still take at least 30 years for the positive effects to begin to be felt. All the while, the destructive effects of climate change would continue and increase, albeit somewhat less drastically. But it gets worse. As is widely acknowledged, not only are we not at net zero today, but the chances of staying below 1.5 degrees of warming is vanishing. And now the question is whether we can stay below 2 degrees or 2.5 degrees or 3, and who knows what else. You see, prophecy isn't about predicting what will happen in the future based on some special revelation from above. Prophecy is simply telling people what's going to happen in the future based on what is actually known now. And so doing tshuva as returning to God or getting back to taking our spiritual lives seriously is not important because of any fantasy that it will stop the inevitable. Not at all. Tshuva's returning is important because it will help us live through the inevitable. 
what's coming is coming and it's going to get worse and we're all going to be witness to it. That's why Jeremiah tells the people to repent, to do tshuva, not because doing so will save the temple, but because it will save them. And not even because it will necessarily save them from being killed, but maybe, just maybe, it will save them from dying in despair. And what is it that saves us from dying in despair? Well, it's that awareness I mentioned a moment ago. That awareness of the mystery that surrounds us and pervades us and that gives rise to a sense of wonder and humility at all of this. That, as Rupi Kaur has put it, that here you are living despite it all. Shabbat Shalom. Mm -hmm.